Hello, and welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest Duvini, lead pastor at Asbury. Thanks for joining us, and we hope that this episode will enrich your walk with Christ, increase your knowledge of the Bible, and maybe even entertain you a little bit. Here we go. I'm going to do a, a bit on Romans and then a bit on Second Chronicles before I get into uh, the one question that we, we have for this week. Um, so if you've been you know, reading along with our one-year Bible, you are getting close to the end of Second Chronicles by the time you're listening to this, um, and you're also deep into Romans. Now, Second Chronicles is a weird one for us to talk about a little bit because, you know, so much of, of what is happening in the books of First and Second Chronicles are events that have already been covered in Kings and Samuel, um, just recorded from a different perspective, really. They're, they're being written from after the exile, whereas uh, Samuel and Kings are both written uh, before and during the exile. So there's a, a, a different perspective on them, certainly. Um, there is a much greater willingness to criticize the kings of Israel in Chronicles than there was in Samuel and, and the book of Kings, mostly because it's being written from the point of view of people who know how it all turns out in the end. They have just been freed from exile by the Persians. So they know that Israel's kings, by and large, failed to do their job. So Chronicles is is the same stories, but from a different point of view. Um, we haven't talked much about them in the podcast, because up until now, we haven't really had a whole lot to talk about that I haven't covered elsewhere. But today we do have a bit that I want to uh, touch on before we move on. I also want to talk about Paul in Romans. You know, I'm, I'm preaching on Romans. I preach on it this Sunday. I'm going to preach on Romans again next Sunday. Uh, normally, I don't like to do things in the podcast that I'm going to do on Sunday, but Romans is, uh, it's so dense, it's so rich that I, I think I can realistically cover it, you know, on Sunday mornings in my sermon and talk about it on the podcast and still have actually things that I've not touched on very well. Um, there's just so much going on. Romans is quite possibly the the most important of Paul's letters in terms of Christian theology and what we believe and why we believe it and, and um, sort of the... the details of what we believe. This is the first place in the Bible, in the New Testament, and, and in some ways the only place in the New Testament where the uh, the like specific detailed theology of how salvation works, of how God's grace works in us to justify us, to strengthen us, to bring us through to the day of judgment actually happens. Um, for Methodists in particular, this, this letter is hugely important because um, John Wesley took his, his threefold theology of grace. He believed in what he called prevenient grace, the grace of God that calls to us before we ever actually accept Christ for ourselves. Uh, justifying grace, the grace of God that that puts us in right standing before God when we pronounce our faith in him, and sanctifying grace, the grace of God that makes us more and more holy as we continue to walk with Christ. He believed in those three things, and he largely believes in those things because of what Paul says in this letter. 
some of that I touched on on Sunday. Um, we'll talk about it a bit here as well, but the basic idea that Paul is getting at is that uh, you know we are saved by grace through faith when we profess our faith in Jesus. However, we have to then continue working with God through the Holy Spirit to make ourselves holy. And if we don't, the implication is very clearly that, well, we won't be counted among the righteous on the day of judgment. And this is, um, this is where we as Methodists really differ from a lot of other Protestant denominations. And I would argue, frankly, this is where a lot of Protestant denominations have simply ignored what the Bible says. Because there's lots of people out there who will adopt this doctrine of like once saved, always saved is a very simplified way of putting it. It, it stems from the teachings of John Calvin. It's very popular with not only Presbyterians and to some extent Lutherans, but also a lot of the big non-denominational churches and the Baptist churches and um, a lot of the churches that will call themselves Reformed. They adopt that name from the Protestant Reformation, um, which is, it, and that's like one of the largest contingents of Protestantism in the in the Western world, and this is where they are dead wrong. Uh, they believe that once you profess your faith in Jesus, that's you're good to go. That nothing can change your eternal fate after that. Um, frankly, there's nothing in the Bible that suggests that's true, and and here in Romans, Paul suggests the opposite. Paul's pretty clear in Romans 11, that the branches that have been grafted onto the tree of Israel can be removed if they're unfaithful. And he's pretty clear when he argues about the, the necessity of working with the Spirit that uh, you can lose your salvation. You can lose your status uh, of, a, of a righteous person who is justified before God. He's very clear about that. Um, there's just no way around that. We have to take that seriously because what happens when people believe that once you profess your faith in Jesus, nothing can change your eternal fate is that all too often people just believe that all they have to do is uh, publicly confess Jesus as their Savior, pray a special little prayer, and then go to church at least somewhat regularly, and, and they're golden. And that is simply untrue. That's not how it works. You have to actually live a Christian life. Now the good news is, of course, and apologies if you've heard that announcement coming in, um, the good news, of course, is um, it seems it seems like as long as you take that truth seriously, as long as you take seriously your commitment to Christ and and the realities of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, and you really do try and live a Christian life, you're, you're golden. Um, it doesn't seem as though um, losing your salvation is like a really common thing. It seems actually that that most people who, who accept Jesus are empowered by the Holy Spirit to live a Christian life. Um, but folks, I'll be honest with you. I look around at at the state of American Christianity, and in particular, um, American Protestant Christianity, which is what I'm most familiar with in, in the United States today, uh, and I see a whole lot of people who I think have 
probably lost their salvation. I don't know if that's the best way to phrase it. But I see a whole lot of people who don't actually live Christian lives. Even though they profess the Christian faith, they don't live Christian lives. And, and in some cases, these are simply people who have put far too much value in, in politics, human politics, than, and, and have neglected the kingdom of God. Um, and that's, that's a problem that has really ramped up in recent years. I preach on this all the time, but I, it's because I think it's one of the greatest crises facing American Christianity is that so, so many people have effectively abandoned the gospel in favor of politics. I see it with uh, people who are so devoted to Donald Trump, they can't fathom the idea that he might have been guilty of wrongdoing or that he might have made mistakes. I see it with people who are so incredibly devoted to whomever is opposing Donald Trump that they can't possibly fathom that that person made any mistakes. It goes both ways. Um, But I see it all the time. And so we must heed Paul's words that that actually the way we live our lives matter. So I'm going to dive into Paul here, uh, and in, in particular into some things I didn't necessarily, I touched on some of this stuff on Sunday, but I didn't go into detail. And one of the things I want to really highlight is uh, a, a sort of motif that Paul is going to use not only in Romans, but it's going to show up in most of his letters. And that is the flesh versus the spirit. Now, all too often, this has been interpreted not just by by a lady, but by pastors and prominent theologians as um, Paul highlighting this dichotomy between our physical self and our spiritual self. Between the physical world and the spiritual world. And and thus, they, they believe that Paul is lauding the spiritual world and the spiritual self above the physical world and the physical self. Um, and, and so they believe in this sort of dichotomy. This is why you see a lot of churches that don't really care much about what happens to the physical world we live in because it's all going to be destroyed in the end anyway. Right? That's what they say. Um, once again, that is dead wrong. There is nothing in the Bible to indicate that the world is just going to be destroyed and annihilated at the end of time. Quite the opposite, actually. Revelation is very explicitly clear that the world will be restored and rejuvenated at the end of time. Um, Because what Paul is highlighting when he talks about the flesh versus the spirit, and this becomes very explicit, by the way, in Romans 8, is that he's not highlighting this dichotomy between our physical body and our spirit. He is... He is talking, when he says spirit, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And when he talks about flesh, he's talking about everything else that makes us us. So this is not a dichotomy between our physical self and our spiritual self. It's a dichotomy between the corrupt human will and the holy divine will. It's literally comparing us versus the spirit of God. There is no dichotomy between our physical self and our spiritual self, or the physical world and the spiritual world. It is the corruption of a world tainted by the fall versus the goodness of a God coming to restore 
the world and all within it. And, and he makes that explicit throughout Romans 7 and 8. In Romans 7, he has this really fascinating explanation, by the way, of how sin rules over us, right? He talks about how even, even when he wants to do what is good and right, he doesn't. He does the opposite. He does what's wrong, even though he knows that it's wrong. And it's because our sinful nature rules over us. So that even when we when we understand clearly the difference between right and wrong, when we when we understand that we're making a choice that is sinful and wrong, we make the wrong choice because sin has so much power over us. And we are unable to break free. And it's that discourse that leads to this famous line at the beginning of Romans 8, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus precisely because... Those of us who are in Christ Jesus have the Spirit of God living in them. And he tells the Romans in chapter 8 that they no longer have to follow their sinful nature because the Spirit of God lives in them. But he's also very, very clear that the Spirit doesn't control you. Even with the Spirit in you, you have to make the right choices. All the Spirit does is it gives you the ability to choose which you did not have before you came to Christ. That's Paul's argument here. The Spirit gives you the ability to actually choose to make the right choice. And that, again, is a crucial distinction because He's arguing that before you come to Christ, you aren't even capable of making the right choice. But afterwards, you still have to make the right one. And this implies, of course, that you might still make the wrong choice from time to time. You see, the Bible is very consistent from beginning to end that our choices matter. And it's actually pretty consistent that God does not predetermine things. In fact, the, the image you get of the Bible in, in terms of how it, how it portrays God's knowledge of the future, if you really pay close attention when you read it, it's, it's not so much an image of a God who knows the exact details of everything that will happen in the future, but rather of a God who is so wise, so knowledgeable of his creation, that he can predict how things will turn out based on present events. You get this image of, of like, um, it, it's in, in terms of like God interacting with human affairs and, and, and setting things up to, to create the outcome he wants. It's almost like instead of uh, a God who knows how everything is going to turn out, it's more like the image of like a chess grandmaster playing a four-year-old who's never seen a chess board before, right? He just, he's so far ahead in terms of his knowledge of how everything works and his ability to predict what will happen that is as if he knows all the details of the future, but there are plenty of times in the Bible where it seems as though actually God has not predetermined things. It's not to say that God could not know all the details of the future. It's almost like God chooses not to know all the details of the future because he wants to see what we're going to do um, 
but he still clearly has a plan he intends to to put into action, and he's so knowledgeable, so much wiser than we are, that there's nothing we can do to prevent him from getting what he wants. So all along, the Bible insists that the choices we make matter. They're very important. We can choose not to listen to the guidance of the Spirit. And I would bet most of us listening to this have had moments where we have made that exact choice. Where we have been contemplating doing something that we knew was wrong. We knew what the right choice was, and we made the wrong choice anyway. Even when we had the ability to make the right one. We can choose to reject the guidance of the Spirit. That's important. It's important to understand that. Because so often people think that if God is in control of everything, if God knows everything, God God therefore must be causing the bad things in my life to happen. People lose their faith over this, right? I mean, they, they question why God allows so many bad things to happen, and then they come to the conclusion that if God is really so good, he wouldn't allow these bad things to happen. So either God doesn't exist or God's not that good of a God. The reality is, our choices matter. Our choices matter. God isn't controlling every detail of what happens in the world. The bad things that happen are not God's fault. Those are things that people have done. Our own choices or the choices of our loved ones or the choices of people we don't even know can all cause horrible things to happen. It's not God's fault. Our choices matter. Paul's very, very clear on that. And, and sort of one last thing on, on Paul that I want to hit on. In, in chapter 8, verse 20, we see uh, that our sin has affected all of creation. Paul's explicit on that. Our sin has affected all of creation, right? He even talks about, it's very, it's like this tragic moment where he acknowledges, look, the rest of creation didn't even have a choice. It's been tainted by this curse because of our sin. And so all creation groans and waits for the day when God will come to make it right. Human sin, therefore, does not only affect humans, it affects everything. It affects the very all, all of the physical laws of the universe, the functioning of the world we live in. All of it is affected by human sin. People ask questions like, why, why does cancer exist if, if God created things good? Why I ask sometimes, why do mosquitoes exist, right? Why would God create something as horrible as a mosquito? The reality is, human sin altered the very fabric of creation. We can say correctly that bad things are the result of human sin. We can attribute any and all suffering in the world to sin without laying blame on specific people or events. And this is crucial because... A lot of people misstep here and say that bad things are the result of human 
human sin, but they make it specific. They'll say, if you're suffering from cancer, mm, should have prayed harder. What sin have you done that brought this on yourself? But that's not the way it works. No, 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 no. Cancer happens because human sin broke the world and things don't work the way they're supposed to. Which means there's two options. Either either cancer is something that had a good purpose originally and it's broken and doesn't work the way it's supposed to and we just don't know what that good purpose was or cancer is something that didn't exist until human sin broke the world. This is true also of like catastrophic events, hurricanes, earthquakes, volcanic eruptions. These things, by the way, all actually have a clear purpose in terms of creation. Right? Um, hurricanes function like giant air conditioners. Did you know that? They, they, they take hot air from the tropics and redistribute it further north. If there were no hurricanes... The, the tropic region of the world would be uninhabitable. It would be so incredibly hot that no life could survive there. So hurricanes have a clear purpose. We're the ones who built cities below sea level in hurricane zones. And we're the ones who, who drained the wetlands to do it. You know, wetlands are like nature's flood control. They absorb all the water and energy of those big storms and just sap them of all their destructive force. And the things that live in wetlands can handle all that. The plants and animals that live there aren't bothered by those things because they are meant to live in that environment. We drain the wetlands. We remove the natural defenses of the world against things like hurricanes. You see then how, how humans negatively affect God's design for things. Our sin affects everything and the world doesn't look like it's supposed to. Nothing in the world works the way it's supposed to. And so we can quite literally attribute any and all suffering in the world to human sin. We just don't but we don't need to blame specific people or events from it because that's not how it works. It's not like person X sinned and therefore this thing happened. It's that all humans have sinned, creation is broken and doesn't work the way it's supposed to, and so bad things happen that are not supposed to happen. And this is also a reminder that our great hope is that God is going to come to recreate everything and undo all the bad that we've done. Now, as an aside, this, this simultaneously forces us, by the way, to acknowledge that climate change is real. And also, to take some of the scientific reports about what it's doing and how to fix it with a grain of salt. We have to acknowledge that, that human activity negatively affects creation. We don't, we don't even need science to tell us that, but it is confirming it. But we also don't necessarily have to worry about it as much as other people do, because we know that creation belongs to God, and God is at work, and God has plans to restore his creation, and we can safely assume that God has plans to limit the damage we can cause before he returns. This is why it's important to actually think these things through instead of just buying into the political talking points about them. The gospel doesn't really allow us to buy into those talking points. 
to just sign up for a political ideology. The gospel requires that we think things through deeply and theologically. It requires that we take what we know about God and what we know about, about humanity and apply them to all these issues and think them through. Climate change is just one example. We know that God made creation good. We know that God intended for humans to be the caretakers of creation. We've done a terrible job of that so far. We should be concerned by that. We should be concerned with making sure that we do a better job of taking care of the world we live in. And we also shouldn't be terribly worried that that things are going to get as bad as people say they are. Because, A, even if they do, God is still God, and God is still going to come back and fix everything. But B, we can, we can assume that because God loves us and because God is at work in the world and God is still in control of things, He's going to limit how much damage we can actually cause to his creation. God loves his creation. You see what I'm saying? Nothing is as simple as the world wants to make it out to be. And Christians who who just fall in to the political talking points and abandon the complexities of the gospel are going to miss out on a lot of important truths. So I'm encouraging you as you read through Romans, to really absorb all of these deep, complex things that Paul is saying. But don't just use them as, like, theoretical knowledge. Take them and apply them to your life, to to the way you think about the world. That's what you're meant to do, to absorb these truths and let them shape you and mold you. be deeply thoughtful people because the gospel and the truth of the Bible these things should shape every aspect of our lives and all too often we don't let them do that all too often we, we really just sort of wall them off in this section of our minds and hearts that's reserved for private religion and we just ignore the rest but we can't do that we can't do that they have to shape everything about us. They, they compel us to take action here and now, and they also give us hope for the future no matter what. And we'll, we'll get to more of that both on Sunday and on next week's podcast as we continue in Romans. For now, I'm going to go and take a look at Second uh, Chronicles 10. This is the story of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, ascending to the throne and then immediately doing a lot of incredibly stupid things. Um, so this is, this is, by the way, this is the first time, I, I think, that we see a, a real complaint about how Solomon ruled. Now, I think this complaint might have been repeated in, uh, in, in Kings, but uh, I don't know how explicit it was off the top of my head. I'd have to go back and read it. But, but here you see these people coming in and saying, listen... Your father Solomon was a harsh master. Big complaint, right? He's supposed to be this great, glorious king, the best, one of the best kings Israel has had, right? He's led them to this unprecedented age of prosperity, but he's a harsh master. Taxes are high. He demanded a lot of labor from the people, and, and this implies, like, you know, conscripted labor from the people. They would have been compensated for it, but they were still being forced to do jobs that weren't necessarily what they wanted to do. 
And so there's this resentment among the people for the conditions they've been living under. They've been, they've been, they want the taxes lowered. They want to be able to return to a, a, a an easier life, basically. And um, Rehoboam hears this complaint, and then he goes to his counselors to get advice because he's a new king. He wants to make sure he gets this right, presumably. He goes to these older counselors who were his father Solomon's counselors. So they are experienced men. They know what they're talking about, and they give him good advice. They tell him, look, give the people what they want, lower the taxes, you know, ease up on the labor demand, and you'll win the loyalty of the people. Now, this is, this is something we in our democratic country and in a modern world where there are very few absolute monarchies we we tend to forget sometimes that like it, if you're going to rule as an absolute monarch like Rehoboam and Solomon and David did you can only really do that if the people like you right you you, you need the support of the people to rule It's, it's something that, you know, this is not the same thing as like a dictatorship as we think of it where people can rule through fear and military power. I mean, that might work for a time, but the legitimacy of any king is based on the support of the people. If the people don't like you, you're going to have a very difficult time remaining in power. You need the people to like you. So they're saying, look, win the loyalty of the people, show them kindness now, and things will go well for you. But Rehoboam doesn't actually like that advice. Right? He ignores what the experienced counselors tell him, and he turns instead to a bunch of idiots he grew up with. Right? And I use that term. These are obviously very stupid, arrogant men, and there's just no other way to say it. Um, these are his lifelong friends, but they are a bunch of yes-men who, who aren't going to give him valuable advice. They're only going to tell him what he wants to hear, and that is presumably why he keeps them around in the first place. And they're very vulgar. right? They have this line about, you know, tell them, Tell them that your little fifth finger is thicker than your father's waist, and this is um, this is a reference to uh, genital girth. Basically, there's no other way to say it. It's not polite. It's disgusting. Um, it's very vulgar, and it's intended to to show that the character of the men Rehoboam is turning to for advice. They give this this disgusting piece of of stupid, shallow advice here, and he follows their terrible advice, and he tells the people. He's going to be an even harsher master than his father. And his arrogance and his stupidity leads directly to the rebellion that will split the kingdom and spell disaster for the people of Israel for the remainder of their history. It's a really gross and tragic episode. And... and of course, you have this line in there, right, that this was God's will because he had told Solomon that he, that the kingdom would be divided as a result of his sin. Um, but it doesn't make, it's, it's one of those, to me, it's a difficult passage to read because it's like, man, if you would just have listened to the obviously good advice from the older counselors, what, what would have happened? But we'll never know. It's just this horrible little episode. Um, and again, Chronicles is a bit more explicit about about this stuff because it's much more critical of the monarchy. So that's your little bit on Chronicles today. You have this 
here's Solomon's son Rehoboam, who's not going to be a very good king. Um, and it's foreshadowing a, a lot of terrible things that are going to happen along the way. You know, what's going to happen next is that all the priests and Levites in the territory of the rebellious tribes are going to leave and come down to Judah. So you end up, you know, you end up with effectively um, nine tribes in the northern kingdom. And then the southern kingdom has the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Judah, and the tribe of the Levites. And they will remain divided. They will be at war with each other for a long time. So the, the glory days are over for Israel, and they're now entering a, a very unsettling period in their history. So, before we go, I, I have one question this week that's been asked, and um, it, it's about a passage that was read a, a while ago. Um, but there's this episode where King David takes a census, and God gets angry with him and demands that he choose a, a punishment, right? He basically says, you screwed up. You can choose between these three punishments, and David, you know, chooses and all that. The question, though, is why was God so mad at David for taking a census? And it's a really good question. I think actually someone has asked this once before, and I can't remember if I answered this in a Bible study in person or in a previous episode of the podcast because it was this, this episode was also covered in Samuel, and uh, I, I did deal with it then, but I'm going to deal with it again now because it's a good question, and I do think lots of people probably ask that question. Why was God so mad at David for taking a census? It seems like that's a relatively innocent thing. Well, there's a couple of things going on here. The first is, in, um, in Exodus and Deuteronomy, there are rules established for taking a census that require... Um, it requires every man counted in the census to offer up a sacrifice. And, and the purpose of that is to remind people that God is the real king of Israel. God has the authority. So if there is a census being taken, it is done on the authority and the instruction of God and nobody else. So David, ordering a census without having God tell him to order a census is is usurping God's authority there. And, and this is crucial because David is David is like a, a, a proxy king, right? God is the real king of Israel, and he rules through David. So David's authority is limited because God is the real king. So David does not have the authority to order a census anyway. So that's the first reason that it's wrong. The second reason why it's a problem is that in this day and age, when a king orders a census, it is for the specific purpose of determining how many... It's, it's, it's done basically to prepare for a draft for the army and or to raise taxes both of which help a king to concentrate his power. And God's not okay with that. Because again, it's not David's power to work on, it's God's power. So that's why God's mad at David for, for ordering a census. David is forgetting who is really king, who is really in charge. And God is reminding him of his place. He's, he's humbling David, basically. 
in doing that. That's our only question for this week. But folks, I want to remind you that if you're listening into this, you can always submit questions. Um, you can send them to my email at forest.divinity at asburycc.org. Or you can, you know, post them up on the church Facebook page. You can ask us in person, whatever you want to do. But we always love to answer whatever questions you have. And with that, my friends, I will, I will see you all next week.